I can say with pride that I have devoted days and nights to not reading, and that with unflagging energy I use every free moment to acquire, bit by bit, an encyclopedic diseducation. The best teacher is not the one who knows the most, but the one who is most capable of reducing knowledge to that simple compound of the obvious and wonderful. This is the fourth in our series, Transatlantic Wisdom, sponsored by the America Zentrum in Hamburg. I'm Alan Swenson of the German Department at Colgate University. And I'm Michael Coyle of the Department of English at Colgate University. We are going to look today at two contemporaries, Karl Kraus, the Viennese writer, critic, born in 1874, died in 1936, who was very closely tied to most of the major writers in Austrian society at the time, but gradually moved to working on his own for a periodical he, he founded called, in German, Die Fackel, uh, The Torch. And bit by bit, um, either his collaborators fell away or he pushed them away, and he became the sole <laughs> contributor to it. And it was where most of these aphorisms that we'll talk about today were published. And we'll be thinking about him in the company of the American H.L. Mencken, Henry Louis Mencken, the sage of Baltimore, born in 1880, died in 1956, and like Krauss, uh, a very active journalist and essayist and editor and like Krauss, a prickly personality who wasn't the best at keeping friends. But Mencken was among the most important, what we would today call public intellectuals of his era. He was of a German family. His grandfather had emigrated from Saxony in 1848. And Mencken's German heritage was hugely important to his sense of self and to his political convictions. He, um, just one last note, he wrote the first book in English on Nietzsche and over the course of his career, translated Nietzsche and, and commented on Nietzsche frequently. Maybe a good way to get into this uh, is uh, to approach Krauss, who is not well known in the United States, but by an anecdote about him that I think says a great deal about what, how he was seen and what, what his interests were. This is, it was reported that the composer Ernst Krenek said this about Krauss. At a time when people were stirred up by the shelling of Shanghai by the Japanese, I ran into Karl Krauss working on one of his famous comma problems, and he said something to this effect. I know that this is all senseless given that the house is on fire. But as long as it is at all possible, I have to keep doing it. For if people who should have attended to this had always seen to it that the commas were in the right place, Shanghai would not be burning. Mm. You know, that's such a modernist conviction. That shows up in any number of modernist writers like Eliot or, or Ezra Pound, who once said, it, when words cease to cling close to things, kingdoms fall and empires diminish. This idea that, that precision in writing can save the republic. That, that is very close to what Krauss had in mind, too, that he, he attacks patriots and, and uh, nationalists or whatever, but he was very devoted to Austria and to Vienna, but thought that it desperately needed exactly that kind of help. In particular, he was a, uh, an opponent of war, and was horrified by Austria's involvement in World War One, and in many cases saw precisely the euphemisms of the government as being one of the real problems of contemporary society that let people ignore what was going on. 
Yeah, as we'll see, Mencken was very similar in his political convictions. He was horrified by America's participation in the First World War. He'd worked really hard to get America to enter the war on the side of Germany. That cost him a lot when we finally did enter the war on the other side. Um, maybe a good place to start, too, are some of uh, Krauss's ideas about language. This aphorism, for example, he masters the German language. That is true of a salesman. An artist is a servant <laughs> of the word. Alan, in, in, in a minute, I, I hope you'll say a word about the, the status of, of Krauss's work in English translation. But this, this epigram, this, this aphorism you just shared with us is, is really interesting because that's the kind of thing we expect to hear from poets, right? That mm. the poet is just a vessel through which the muse speaks. This is an ancient idea. And it's striking to find this coming from somebody like Krauss, whom, if you only know him casually, you would think, oh, he was a journalist. No, and he, he makes that clear as well. I, I think another one of the telling his series of aphorisms about language, he, he points out, again, coming back to speaking of German, and he's not talking about foreigners here, but rather German speaking German. And this aphorism gets to that point. People don't understand German but I can't tell them things in journalese. <laughs> and he often, he often gets at the idea in a very pointed way, too, that what he's trying to do is to bring the language back to something that has precision, that, that is um, raised to a higher level. Uh, my language is the common prostitute that I turn into a virgin. Um, that he sees language being sullied by the everyday use of people who don't take it seriously. That particular figure might be a, a little uncomfortable for some of our 21st century readers, but that idea shows up in lots of places in, in Mencken. Alan, before we say anything more, I'm holding in my hand a mm -hmm. collection of Krauss's aphorisms edited, by, edited and translated by Harry Zahn. And the title comes from one of my favorite Krausian aphorisms, Half-Truths and One-and-a-Half-Truths. But can you say something about this translation and this selection? I don't know the background of this, but it, it, what is... Krauss wrote a lot of aphorisms. Mm -hmm. There are several books of them. And rather than translating any one of them or presenting them in the groupings that Krauss himself grouped them in... This draws aphorisms from all of the books and rearranges them according to topics that are ones that Krauss commonly was interested in. So the groupings of it then are with my narrow horizon, in part getting at Krauss's focus on things like uh, precision of punctuation, precision of use of language, but making it clear, and this I think is where he ties into the great tradition of aphorisms like Nietzsche, that on the one hand, he's, he's suggesting that he cares terribly about minutia, but he wants to make sure that you understand that it's in the service of something much bigger than that, something like the artist's use of language, like the purity of language that he expects from great art. This little volume at 128 pages, including the index, is really a kind of crestomathy, right? It's just a, a you know, a, a nightstand companion. Yep. But there are places where Krauss absolutely wows me. But be, before we go to those, could we revisit where this series, this podcast series started, Transatlantic Wisdom? And, and that is the idea that although wisdom literature is as old as literature itself, you know, we have the Proverbs, you know, from the Bible and, and we have things from the ancient Greeks and, and so on and so forth. The nature of wisdom literature changes with, with Nietzsche. So that to read Nietzsche, and, and Nietzsche was so self-conscious about his form. So his aphorisms become self-destabilizing. It's, it's part of why contemporary theorists refer to, to Nietzsche and everyone who, who comes after him as sort of anti-foundationalists, right? There is no solid foundation for a universal truth. So Nietzschean aphorisms tend to be 
they 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 turn on antithesis and what would you say antithesis and paradox paradox and i think that's what, that's what krauss picks up when he talks about devoting days and nights to not reading <laughs> uh, to gradually acquiring a, a an encyclopedic encyclopedic diseducation I, I think what I'm not sure about with him that, and maybe you and I disagree on this with Nietzsche, I do think that Nietzsche tries to, his his aphorisms are, as you say, self-destabilizing, I think is the term used. Mm-hmm. But the reason Nietzsche does that is not, uh, not, I think, that he believes we can't get at any, uh, that there is something worth aiming for. But that our language gets in the way of it. So if you read an aphorism and you think, oh, yeah, I get it, you've missed the point. Because, in fact, the the nature of all things that are con- uh, controversial is that they are complex, have a complexity that can't be reduced to a formula, a simple statement, or even a clear essay – well, well, we'll have a chance to come back to this in the in the last podcast of our series because we're going to revisit Stevens and and the American poet Wallace Stevens. Mm. But it's probably Alan because I, you know, I come to Nietzsche through the American poets who are so inspired by him that when I think of Nietzsche and truth, I I'm basically interested in. in my understanding here is that Nietzsche doesn't see truth as something that's out there for us to discover. It's something that we create. And language is, is crucial in that process. But you were talking a few minutes ago about Krauss's relationship to these Nietzschean innovations and that he has a, a different relation to, to language. Could we look at the aphorism that, that gives the Harry Zahn translation its title? One and a half truths and half truths. Half truths and one and a half truths. Yeah. An aphorism never coincides with the truth. It is either a half truth or one and a half truths. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to go away from this, but I just want to put one other of Krauss's aphorisms in the mix here. And that is, and this is another one of my very favorites. The English here is a little awkward. Only he is an artist who can make a riddle out of a solution. Mm-hmm. That that does, I think, really get at the heart of the matter here is solutions for both Krauss and for Nietzsche are dangerous, I think, because you want to latch on to this and think, now, okay, now, aha, I've got it. And the careful thinker who's going to get us to a place somewhat closer to, and, and maybe I will say truth here, I think Nietzsche was interested in it, but I do agree with you. What Nietzsche meant by truth is truth for humans, that that. Mm-hmm. We cannot step outside ourselves and find the things in themselves that what we are always looking for is how do we make meaning out of human life as it is? Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, to get to that, you have to turn what we think are solutions into some something with a form that lets us realize it's actually a puzzle. It's not that simple. And the, the process of self-investigation, the, the, the quest for self-understanding is never complete. So back then to the, this this one from which our selection gets its title, mm-hmm. an aphorism never coincides with the truth. It is either a half-truth or one and a half-truths. How would you gloss that? Well, I think that perhaps the half-truth then is, and, and Nietzsche does this as well, is to s- state something so in fact it perhaps trips you up because it appears to maybe even be false. In any case, it, it's demanding of you that you step in and flesh it out so that it becomes a something like a truth, although it's not going to be that. It never mm. coincides with the truth. Or, or in a way, maybe you can even look at the same thing from a different angle. It's maybe more than a truth because, in fact, it expresses the imperfect, incomplete nature of our statement which is actually truer than, than that solution that we thought was a solution. Yes, and this is the part of Krauss that I find most exciting. 
And this idea that the way that you put it, the reader has to step in and basically do the work. That for me is, is one of the most salient features of what happens to the aphorism after Nietzsche. Yeah. Right. If you compare it to the epigrams of the Enlightenment, where the idea was to produce a statement of truth that's that's immediately obvious and feels universally accurate, is very different from what we're seeing here. Yeah. Right. In other words, reading an epigram is an almost passive thing. You nod your head and you say, true that. But that won't work here. Turning back to our last podcast in which we talked about Marie von Ebner-Eschenbach and Sarah Manguso, uh, that I, I, I think initially thought when I read Marie von Ebner-Eschenbach's aphorisms that she was in fact implying she was giving us the uh, nugget of truth when she says that an aphorism is the last link mm -hmm. in a long chain of thought. But I think she too was saying just what you were saying now, that yes, it's the last link in a chain of thought, but it doesn't mean anything by itself unless you go back and recreate the links that led up to it. Well, you know, she's such a, a subtle and elegant writer. If you don't read her carefully, you're going to come away with that misapprehension that yes, she's just doing the same thing that the, the gentleman of the Enlightenment did. That was actually kind of exciting reading her with you mm. and uh, to sort of work through this so that she is modern in the sense that we're talking here. She she had, by the way, in a way, the, the, a reputation that brings her sort of towards Nietzsche's sphere that what her fame was in her day as a writer was mm. that she was particularly good at psychology of her characters. And that often becomes a key part of, of aphoristic writing is sort of getting beneath the surface of what people say about themselves, how they present themselves, but in fact, what they do unconsciously, what they do without thinking. Mm -hmm. Now, when we get to Krauss, and, and this is even more true of Mencken, who was self-consciously and deliberately a gadfly. Yeah. And very often kind of insulting to his readers. And I, I, I think I think Krauss was too. I don't mean this like like they're just going to insult everybody, but they're going to insult everybody who thinks they've already got it figured out. Yeah. Both Krauss and Mencken were journalists, and that represents a new development in in this tradition, right? Because Ebner Eschenbach and, and Nietzsche and the other figures that we've looked at were, how to say, not ivory tower intellectuals, but they were thinkers without, an, uh, without an, an obvious political stake. Yeah. Does that seem fair? It, it does. I think that we need to, to point out here, though, that both, interestingly, both Mencken and Krauss go to great efforts to disparage journalists they don't see themselves as the typical journalist. In fact, they, they take a clear stance as being against what journalism typically does. Yes, today we talk about what sometimes gets called literary journalism. But, you know, Nietzsche famously was dismissive of philosophers. And I, I think there's a, a parallel there. I mean, today, Nietzsche gets, gets taught most often probably in, in, in philosophy departments. Mm. But I've always loved him because he was a philologer. And I think his, his writing has more to do with poetic tradition than it does philosophical. But obviously, I'm going to say that because I'm a professor of literature. <laughs> and even though I'm a professor of literature, I, I will take the opposite stance. I do think he saw himself as, uh, probably as Mencken and Krauss do, uh, as a real I don't know if one should say journalist here, but they're doing it in the way it should be done if you're going to do it. Nietzsche, I think that was his stance, was that a philosopher is not somebody who is a professor in a philosophy department. A philosopher is right. somebody who puts their life right. on the line for their sense of the world like, like Socrates did or like Schopenhauer did. I love that way of putting it, Alan. Yeah, put their life on the line. And all of them, Nietzsche, Krauss, Mencken, they were all really skeptical of academics. Mencken could be savage about the professoriate. Yeah. 
in in a way too that one of my favorite Krauss aphorisms you know because I I probably qu quote it uh, many times during the course of any given year being, and I see it as even more appropriate now than when Krauss wrote it the new dramatic art dilettantes without stage fright and uh, I suppose it gets at another facet of both Krauss and Mencken they were both elitists through and through. And Krauss had no patience for this increasingly modern notion that, I suppose we call it finding our voice or whatever we want to say, but that leads us mm -hmm. to think somehow we don't have to learn the skill of the stage or the skill of whatever art it is that we participate in, yet we still have a right to somehow public attention. Dilettantes without stage fright. So this is an aphorism that, that cuts in a couple different ways at, at once, doesn't it? Mm. What would it mean for them to have stage fright? They'd be embarrassed of how bad their art was. Ah. Afraid to appear in public, the hacks, the amateurs that they are. So this is part of what attracts me to both Cross and Mencken. And it goes back to what you were saying a couple moments ago about their disdain for other journalists, because they both thought of themselves as artists. And maybe, you know, as we continue talking here, we'll, we'll flesh out more what, what that would have meant to them, what, would it would, what it would have meant to them to think of themselves as artists. But certainly, part of it is an intense focus on their language. Did, did Mencken, uh, like Krauss, did he also produce literature other than aphorisms, journalistic pieces? If, if Mencken ever produced fiction, I don't know about it. Krauss's magnum opus was a, a very, very long play published over time in his periodical, The Torch, called The Final Days of Mankind. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Was he, th was he thinking about our era? <laughs> well, that people, people at the time of World War I, I think, mm -hmm. felt as pessimistic in many ways probably as we do now. Maybe with less justification, but it seemed apocalyptic to, to them too. Well, it was apocalyptic, wasn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. basically the world that, that Vienna had known before the First World War was gone after it. Maybe that's one of the hallmarks of, of modernism, period this sense that the, the world is ending. So, dilettantes without stage fright. Yeah. We've spoken about what it would mean to be without stage fright. How about dilettantes? Um, I think that he sees it as a, modern, a feature of modern life that we no longer take the time to acquire a thorough skill. That if things are, uh, I suppose, if the world is now about our 15 minutes of fame, mm. it isn't worth taking it seriously and learning the trade, learning how to do it properly, learning where the commas go. So you and I both know this as uh, professors of literature correcting writing that increasingly um, it's seen as nitpicking if you point out the improper use of punctuation or lack of it. Mm -hmm. Well, all of the new uh, social media platforms and, you know, the new technologies, there's a profound distrust of language built into them. This is why people use emojis and emoticons when they're, they're texting because no one, no one relies any longer. I, I say no one. Most people don't rely any longer on their ability to get the language right. Misunderstandings yeah. happen so fast. And I think this has as, as much to do with the way that, that social media gets consumed, right? It gets consumed rather than read. It's sort of passive. So misunderstandings become the norm. But the writing that, that we're talking yeah. about here doesn't want to be consumed. It resists consumption. It, it will stick in your throat if you try simply to, to consume it. it. It needs to be fought with, wrestled with, worked through. As you were saying earlier, it demands a very active kind of reader. Yeah. So, Krauss has a lot to say about, about his, his forms, but 
he says this kind of thing multiple times. Someone who can write aphorisms should not fritter away his time writing essays. Yeah. I don't know that he goes into – he makes it as clear as Nietzsche does why this form matters to him, the short form. But um, I love the one you just read and um, another one of my favorites about the aphorism – I suppose it's not really about the aphorism, but it implicitly is – Krauss writes, there are writers who can express in as little as 20 pages what I occasionally need as many as two for. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, you know, the, one of the aphorisms we – I'm sorry, Krauss is so much fun. We could spend the rest of this podcast just, just reading mm. our favorites. But this idea, uh, only he is an artist who can make – come on, there's got to be a better better English for that. But only he is an artist who can make a riddle out of a solution. So it's the compression, but a, a compression that, that actively resists any kind of simple conclusion. Yeah. When I'm teaching poetry, I often tell my students, the meaning of a poem is the least interesting thing about it. And I, I think... That, that general principle holds for this kind of writing as, as mm -hmm. well. If this is wisdom literature, as, as we obviously think it is, it's not literature that puts wisdom on a pretty silver platter and hands it to us. Absolutely. There's a struggle yeah. involved. I think that the, the, that's what they are all convinced of. I've often discuss this with you too, that I, I see Virginia Woolf in a way as an aphoristic writer for that very reason. She doesn't write aphorisms, but um, when she begins her book, A Room of One's Own, she makes it clear that she will not be able to give us a nugget of truth we can put on the mantelpiece after we're done, mm -hmm. that she's going to come at this issue from all different angles because anything she says that's controversial cannot be reduced to facts that can be handed to us. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe one of the things, too, that might be interesting to look at is, is what this uh, elitist attitude that both of them have, because it has a great deal to do with politics of the time. One of the ways in which uh, this comes out in Krauss, um, in one of his aphorisms, he, he, he writes... When there were no human rights, the exceptional individual had them. That was inhuman. Then equality was created by taking the human rights away from the exceptional individual. And this makes me think of Nietzsche, but also of Blake, whom we've mentioned here before, too. Well, when you say it makes you think of Nietzsche, I, I assume you're thinking of Nietzsche's account of the slave revolt in the genealogy yeah. of morality. Yeah. Is that right? Or Blake's idea that one law for the lion and one and the you know one law for the lion and the ox oppression. is oppression. And certainly both both Krauss and Mencken were elitist. But not el elitist in, in some in some casual way that has to do with class privilege. They were both tireless advocates of education and self-education. Mencken was even an, an autodidact and, and uh, yeah. he had no, no tolerance for, for laziness. Not everyone is deserving of an opinion. I think they both would have been horrified by the, the media ecology of the 21st century where anybody, anybody, whoever they are, all they need is an internet connection and they can put their, their opinions and convictions out there. Yeah, and this again, this is exactly what he means by dilettantism without stage fright. Mm -hmm. uh, no hesitation mm -hmm. that what I have to say might actually be wrong, foolish, shallow. I feel it strongly, so I'm going to put it out there. Mm -hmm. And of course, everyone else will want to hear it. But how about, how about this moment in Krauss? My readers think that I write for the day because my writings are based on the day. So I shall have to wait until my writings are obsolete. Then they may acquire timeliness. Now, Alan, as, as I understand this, 
the first part of of this aphorism is about his work as a journalist, right? Yeah. So he's 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 responding to the events of the day. How do you understand the second part of it? This is it. This is a puzzling one in many ways. I'm not really sure. It it seems like the gap between what he says and what he's hoping we will get to is greater than it often is. But it fits well with another one of his aphorisms where he says that because people know the things that occasion my riding, meaning they know the people here in Vienna that I'm attacking, uh, they think I'm a bad artist. And he did write out, out of the day is literally what it says in German, that he picked the mm. things that, that provoked him from contemporary Viennese life. But what he was trying to get at was not journalism. It wasn't reporting the news of the day. It was to try and get at what he saw, I think, as better humanity behind it. And seeing it as daily news gets in the way of that. So I, I assume that's what he's trying to get at here is that once once my nobody knows who the people are I'm writing about anymore, then they will start actually looking what the looking at what the heart is of what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to get at something that lasts beyond my time. Uh, so then we are the perfect readers for Krauss now in the 21st century. <laughs> Either that or we're dilettantes without stage fright. Mm. Well, not our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you know, we do have to admit that, though. I, mean, I think Krauss would see podcasts as, uh, by and large, an example of dilettantes without stage fright. Well, sure, because one of the the main features of literary production and information exchange in the 20th and 19th centuries was there were always gatekeepers, right? Educated people who would decide what was true, they would fact check and all of that, and, and that's gone. And I'm not trying to suggest that there there are no goods that have come to us from all of these these new internet media. But uh, yeah, Cross and, and Mencken, they probably would have been glad to have died when they did. <laughs> your, your comment, though, does get at something important here, too. And I think we would have to look at probably Mencken. I don't know him as well as I do Krauss, but I think you, to, to fully appreciate what Krauss is doing with his aphorisms, you'd have to look at what he did in his life. So you can come away from easily thinking he was a misogynist because he often writes rather pointed things about women in society. And yet, if you look at his life, he, he often was very engaged in access to education for women, um, in supporter of feminist causes. So it's, it, the relationship between what he says and what its meaning is in a broader context is complicated. And I think he wanted it that way. <laughs> That would be true for, for Mencken as well. He, he published a book in 1918 called In Defense of Women, but it really wasn't so much a defense of women as a critique of the competitive relationship between the sexes. And I, I know this is an idea that, that interests you and Virginia Woolf's work, but we'll get to that in our, our next podcast. But I, I, think, I think, you know, there are, are moments in both... Mencken and, and Krauss that are a little uncomfortable for 21st century readers. But I, I think on the whole, this work is probably more interesting now than it, than it was a century ago. And there's, there's one passage in, in Krauss that we were talking about before we went live here. Krauss writes... And you can, you can tell me if this translation is something less than perfect. From a torch, something drops occasionally, a little lump of pitch. From a torch, something drops occasionally, a little lump of pitch. And here, here I have to remind, remind us all of what we began with, that Krauss founded a journal called The Torch, Die Fackel. And that's where he published his aphorisms. So, and he became famous and people, I think, feared being attacked by him in these things. <laughs> uh, 
little burning barbs that drop from the torch. So the implication here is that the truth can sting, right? And I, I think also he likes this idea that it isn't intentional necessarily, that you can't avoid it. If you're going to shine a light on things, at least using a torch, it's a natural part of that, that the burning pitch drops little drops. Mm -hmm. and, and yes, they sting. And you've reminded us that, uh, that in this aphorism, the, the torch, this is a sort of meta moment, right? That it refers to, to Krauss's journal. But I, 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 as I understand Krauss, he would have understood his aphorisms themselves as acting like, like torches, right? They're sources of illumination, but they're not comfortable necessarily. No, and, and actually on the next page following that one, there's a one that I, I quite like. He says, I put my pen to the Austrian corpse because I pers persist in believing there's life in it. <laughs> and uh, what better way to to shock it back into life than to drop little drops of pitch on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, time moves so fast once we start talking about these things. Before we move to Mencken, is there anything more you, you, you want to say about Krauss? No, I, I, I think it's a good idea to move, move the focus to Mencken, and then Krauss probably will pop up here and again, because I do think they often hit on similar topics. Well, how about if we, we make our volta here then, this aphorism from Mencken. The best teacher is not the one who knows the most, but the one who is most capable of reducing knowledge to that simple compound of the obvious and wonderful. And it's that word wonderful that, that attracts me here. He, he doesn't mean like, isn't that nice? so much as he, he means the, the capacity to in, inspire wonder. Like, in, in part, you're saying something that's obvious. That's the 18th century epigram part of it, right? Mm -hmm. But then also something that you didn't see coming and that makes your world feel suddenly bigger. Not more familiar, but bigger. Something that opens up a whole new vista. Yeah, in, in many ways, actually... This is exactly what I mean as I find correspondences between the two, because I think in a, that's part of what Krauss is getting at by in the aphorism you like so much with him, is, is turning a solution into a riddle, turning yeah. the obvious into something that evokes awe or wonder. Yeah. And I think, in general, Mencken thought that, particularly in the world of letters, there was insufficient wonder. And he was deeply troubled by the complacency of the middle class, which is, after all, then and now, the, the largest audience for published writing of any kind. Mm -hmm. um, he was disturbed by their complacency. And I think, like Krauss, really thought that journalism should be more than it was. He says that at, at one point, there's a a series of six books that Mencken published in his lifetime that bore the simple title of Prejudices. And I, you know, I love that he, he, he opens with that. He's not pretending, oh, this is, this is obviously and universally true. Everyone will see this. This is his, his edge, right? So he says, I know of no American who starts from a higher level of aspiration than the journalist. He plans to be both an artist and a moralist, a master of lovely words and merchant of sound ideas. He ends, commonly, as the most depressing jackass of his community. That is, if his career goes on to what is called success. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's suspicious of anyone who succeeds in this level, because if, if the writer is successful, it means they're, they're pandering. Right, it means because they've turned their their back on 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 art. I'm going to have a hard time, Michael, resisting tossing in Krauss aphorisms because they just keep what Mencken writes provokes me to think of these. That uh, one of his his attacks on journalists that I love. Maybe it's even more of an attack actually on politics, but 
How is the world ruled and led to war? Diplomats lie to journalists and believe these lies when they see them in print. <laughs> okay, right back at you. Here's Mencken again. I love this, by the way, because I think there are lots of parallels between them. Here's Mencken again. The whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins, all of them imaginary. <laughs> and when I look at our, our current media ecology of you know 24-7 news People carry their devices around with them and you never get away from it. And they all do the same thing. They try to whip people up into a panic to keep them tuned in so that the news source can get more money for advertising. Yeah. The whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed. Man, he wrote this a century ago, but it could have been written this morning. Yeah. So I don't think that, that Mencken's language, I, I don't think the form of Mencken's aphorisms is as modern as Krauss's. I find Mencken bracing. I'm usually grateful for him when I, I, I read him, grateful to him for when I read him. But he tends to produce writing that works in a much more enlightenment fashion than Krauss. We don't get any of that paradox and antithesis that we find as a matter of course. Actually, I, I probably shouldn't put it that way, but in, in Nietzsche, right? Mm. But that Krauss picks up too, and that we saw in Ebner Eschenbach. But this is striking because, as I said at the top of our podcast, Mencken was inspired by Nietzsche. He wrote the first book in English about Nietzsche. He translated Nietzsche. I mean, essentially, his whole working career, he was in dialogue with Nietzsche. But what he took away from Nietzsche, I think, was really more about certain ideas about the relation of the intellectual to the populace than uh, about literary form. I think that may have something to do also with America as a relatively young country and a pragmatic one. Uh, because it is establishing itself, whereas Nietzsche and Krauss, and in many ways in particular, Krauss was in a decaying old country, which is what he's getting at when he says that, that, that I jab with my pen at the Austrian corpse, mm. that this was not about pragmatic pragmatic issues for him, rather trying trying to see if it's possible to bring life to something that is... is uh, very old and and perhaps suffering from that age. Well, here, on, on just that note, here's Mencken again. Mencken published a book in the 1920s called A Mencken Crestomathy, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, he deliberately produced this little nightstand book like we were talking about with regard to Harry Zahn's selection from Krauss. So here's one of the pieces that Mencken included there. An idealist is one who, on noticing that a rose smells better than a cabbage, concludes that it will also make better soup. <laughs> so, you know, what is the relation of this wisdom to practical politics? Bacon wants us to be smarter. Hmm? He wants us to be more skeptical. He wants us to question truisms and question things that we've always believed to be true without having thought about them. But I think he was, he was certainly a political writer in the sense that he wanted to make a difference, but he wasn't interested in democratic politics. And I think that's one of his biggest takeaways from Nietzsche. It's not that he despised ordinary people, but he didn't think that they should be in a position of power. Krauss likewise. That's that he doesn't talk about it usually in terms of politics as much as he does language. That's what he sees going wrong in the use of language is it is shaped by the masses that use it and they don't use it well and they don't use it carefully. Mm -hmm. And journalists contribute to this terribly too, that 
one of his aphorisms on journal in one of them he says journalism only seems to be serving the present in reality it destroys the intellectual receptivity of posterity i like that one and and we certainly i think it's something we struggle with in news today where news has become increasingly and journalism has increasingly become something that is far more under pressure of the markets than it was in Krauss's time or in Mencken's time, that you could still have family-owned newspapers where family pride kept you concerned about the reputation of your paper. Well, you know, that's another thing that, that Mencken and, and Krauss had in common. They both founded their own journals. Mencken was really good at what he did. And he hadn't been working for um, the smart set for even six years before he was made an editor. But uh, in 1924, he founded the American Mercury with George Jean Nathan. And then he, he sort of forced Nathan out after, after just a year. But the, the point of the American Mercury, which Mencken edited till 1933, and then he sold it, it went into the hands of other people, who quickly turned it into something embarrassing. But under Mencken's editorship, editorship, its point was to offer elegantly irreverent observations about American life and thought. And by 1929, it had 85,000 subscribers. That's impressive. Yeah. But it, at no point was he beholden to sponsors. I'm not sure you could do that in the 21st century. Is it, is it possible yeah. to, to maintain that kind of independence? Well, you, you, I suppose you can. Through um, the internet now, anyone can create their own journal. But in Mencken's time and in Krauss's time, you had to, to demonstrate your skills first. You had to get to a certain position in society where you had access to those things because you didn't have the internet. Now, now everyone has access to it, the dilettantes that, that uh, mm -hmm. Krauss is concerned about. One of the things that, that strikes me about Megan's ideas about government, and, and this would put him in bad odor today, One may no more live in the world without picking up the moral prejudices of the world than one would be able to go to hell without perspiring, he says at, at one point. But he's deeply suspicious of moralizing from government. So in a book of his called uh, Minority Report, he proposes that the worst government is the most moral. A government composed of cynics is often very tolerant and humane, but when fanatics are on top, there is no limit to oppression. And without, you know, getting too political ourselves, that feels to me very resonant at this point in American political life. Hmm. <laughs> I'm just going to say that and then run. And then run. <laughs> So, I, again, it seems to me that, that Mencken is a really interesting figure in terms of American literary history. His book, The American Language, had a profound impact on how Americans think of their culture. Mencken's point there was basically, you know, we're still teaching the king's English in schools, and it's got nothing to do with how Americans actually speak. But he, he wrote a book on the American language that's, that's, that's very learned and very smart, but not at all sloppy like American speech usually <laughs> is. But on the whole, despite how important to Mencken German literary tradition was, his own writing really goes back to, to somebody like Ben Franklin more than it does Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised by that as, as we were thinking through his work, you know, getting ready for this podcast. I don't think in, the, in this sense then that he was as, as modernist a writer as Krauss was. But I still think people should read him because he's really fun. Well, you've convinced me of that too. And, and, and that, that's always a complicated issue looking at 
American modernism versus European modernism, that they developed in different ways. I think it usually is a mistake when you try and see the same thing happening here as happening there. I've always been interested in, in among German authors, there are some interesting correspondences, and I mean now literally uh, exchanges of letters between German authors and American authors that often sh show you more what they misunderstood about each other than what they understood about each other, that the Germans saw America as the great democratic experiment and thought, ah, democratic, that's like overthrowing monarchies. <laughs> and they very often fail to understand the, the deep conservatism of the United States. Mm. So you get Karl Marx writing a congratulatory letter to Abraham Lincoln on his reelection and um, uh, radical leftist poets in Germany writing to Longfellow. So it is, I'm, I'm fascinated though by the degree of resonance between Krauss and Mencken, despite maybe the tone that, that Krauss sounds like he's more on a, the cutting edge of a kind of modernist writing stylistically. But in terms of their concerns, their interests, there, there are a surprising number of points of contact. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. Well, here's, here's maybe one last one before we, we sign off. We were talking a few minutes ago about Krauss's aphorism, from a torch, something drips occasionally, a little lump of pitch. Here's Mencken. Injustice is relatively easy to bear. What stings is justice. <laughs> that is nice. Well, thank you, everyone, for, for spending this time with us and, and listening. I'm Michael Coyle from the Department of English at Colgate University. And I'm Alan Swenson from the German Department at Colgate University. We look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks again for listening. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.